So, as Hannah talked about in the children's message this morning, we are in the midst of a sermon series that we're calling The Enemies of Gratitude. The Enemies of Gratitude. And what we're doing is we're looking at Scripture passages and we're pulling out some things that we find in those Scripture passages that can prevent us from being grateful. Things that can keep us from recognizing and celebrating the blessings that are right here in front of us, right here, right now. And so if you've missed the first three weeks of this series, I would invite you, if you're so interested, to go back to our YouTube channel. Just look for ST Marks TN on YouTube, and you can watch those other three sermons about some of the things that can keep us from being truly grateful Things like nostalgia, things like worry, things like entitlement. Today we're going to look at another thing that absolutely positively that can keep us from being grateful, and it's greed. Our passage of scripture is Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Now, um... I don't eat fast food much anymore, and, and there's a really good reason for it. Uh, the prices keep going up, right? And so does my cholesterol. So I really try very hard not to eat fast food. But if I'm going to eat fast food, there's one place that's just really hard for me to pass up, and it's Chick-fil-A. Now, I realize that some of you have some issues with Chick-fil-A, and I respect that, and I appreciate that, but I just simply can't say no to a Chick-fil-A sandwich. And, and, and so, I, I love Chick-fil-A, not only because the food is good, but I also love it because of the app that allows you to order ahead. And what I love about that app is that you... it tracks your location. So as you're driving to Chick-fil-A, when you get really close, it sends you this little message and says, Tommy, we see you're almost at Chick-fil-A, so we're going to start your order right now, and it'll be fresh and hot for you when you get here. And it always is. And it's always their pleasure to serve me. Another thing that I really like about Chick-fil-A is that uh, they have these sentimental commercials on television. I cry during commercials. I'm not ashamed to admit it. And so when that commercial comes on about that little boy who had the heart problem meeting the manager of the Chick-fil-A who had the heart problem and they connect and commiserate over their experiences, here I am crying and wanting a Chick-fil-A sandwich all at the same time. Uh, one other thing I like about the Chick-fil-A is that when you go online to order your meal ahead of time so that it's ready for you when you get there, you'll see that one of the links on their website is actually Chick-fil-A stories. It's people who have had experiences with Chick-fil-A, and, and again, it's those touch-your-heartstrings kind of story. That's where I learned about John Starr. John Starr. John Starr was one of uh, eight children to Gary and Donna Starr. This family of ten lived in a three-bedroom, one-bathroom home. 
Uh, the father, Gary, was a logistics manager for a janitorial service in town. The mother, Donna, she was a stay-at-home mom. She sewed and repaired curtains on the side just to help ends meet. They didn't have a lot, but they were grateful for what they did have. They had a roof over their head. They had enough food to provide for their family. And as far as they were concerned, that was enough. Uh, they really tried to teach their children uh, some important life lessons as they were raised in that three-bedroom, one-bathroom home for ten people. And it was how to have a strong work ethic, how to have a high moral character, how to be people of integrity. And they said, if you've got that, You'll, you'll be okay in life. Well, as I mentioned, they had a son named John, and John had this dream from the time he was a little bitty boy about wanting to own his own restaurant, and the opportunity for that to happen occurred when he was in the eighth grade. It was quite unexpected. It was quite sudden how it all happened. Uh, Gary and Donna decided that they were going to look for a new church home. They picked one out. They visited it that first Sunday. There was a greeter at the door that offered to take all of them to Sunday school. And so the greeter that took little John, who was in the eighth grade, to his Sunday school, introduced him to a teacher. It was an 80-year-old man teaching a bunch of eighth graders. That's a sign that you're never too old to pour into the lives of children. That 80-year-old man was none other than Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A and the Chick-fil-A sandwich. I didn't even mention the biscuit, did I? You put a little, oh, man. And here's the problem. You can't go get one after church today because it's Sunday. You'll be thinking about that all day long. Well, Stuart Cathy welcomes this little 8th grade boy, John, into his Sunday school class. And over the course of the next several weeks, he is more and more impressed with this young man. Just his attitude, his spirit, his demeanor, everything about him. So he starts asking the little boy questions like, uh, who are your mother and father? Where do you go to school? Where do you live? Uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? All sorts of questions just trying to get to know this little boy a little better. And then one Sunday after church, as this family of ten crowded into their station wagon to go home after worship, Mr. Kathy walked up and asked if he could talk to John's father. So John's father gets out of the station wagon, and right there in the church parking lot, they engage in some sort of conversation that no one in the station wagon can hear because all of the windows are up. All they know is that at some point during that conversation, Mr. Kathy reached into his pocket and he handed something to uh, Gary uh, Starr. And as Gary Starr and him talked for a few more minutes, and then Mr. Starr walked back to the crowded station wagon to get in, he had this look of shock on his face. As soon as he got in the car, his wife Donna wanted to know what was that conversation about. And so Gary proceeded to tell him that they were having a conversation about where we live, our three-bedroom, one-bathroom home full of ten people. And what Mr. Kathy pulled out of his pocket that day was a key. 
He handed that key to Gary Hall. He says, I am not giving you anything. I would like to propose a trade. I dabble in real estate on the side. I would like to trade your house for one of my houses. Here's the address. I want you to go take a look at that house, and you let me know if you think you were willing to do this even trade. So instead of going home that day, the Starr family and their little cramped station wagon make their way to this home. It's seven bedrooms, four bathrooms. It's got a pool in the back and a pool table in the basement. A trade for their three-bedroom, one-bathroom house. Well, because little John had told Mr. Kathy that one day he wanted to own his own restaurant, Mr. Kathy asked him one day while he was still in the eighth grade, would you like to go and sit in with a couple of board meetings with me for Chick-fil-A? And strangely enough, that little boy John said, absolutely. So he started going to these board meetings with Mr. Kathy, the founder of the Chick-fil-A restaurant. Now, Mr. Kathy, even at that age, and even with all the success that he had had, he was still managing the very first Chick-fil-A restaurant that he ever opened. It's called the Dwarf House, and when I was in Atlanta, it was still there. I assume it's still there today. He invited that little boy, John, to go work with him at the Dwarf House. And then when that little boy turned 18, he invited him to be the assistant manager of that restaurant. And then by 2017, little John, all grown up now, now owns his very own Chick-fil-A restaurant in, uh, right outside of uh, Atlanta in a place called Snellville. And you want to know about what John, how he treats that opportunity? Now he's trying to pour into the lives of young people in the same way that Stuart Cathy did. He's bought a couple of cars for people. He's helped them to get their way through school. And if you ask John Starr why he does it, he'll say, well, with all due respect to Stuart Cathy, the reason why I do what I do is because I believe, as Mr. Cathy believed, that everything I possess, everything I own is a generous gift from God. And if God has generously given it to me, should I not then seek to give back generously to God and to all of God's children? That's why I do what I do. Now, in our scripture lesson this morning, we've heard a story about that Jesus is telling. Uh, the Pharisees have come, and they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to make life difficult for Jesus. And they're so intent on trying to trap Jesus that they even invite the Herodians to come along. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians don't agree on much of anything. It's like having a Democrat and a Republican coming together with a common cause. Isn't that strange? So, so uh, the Pharisees are these religious purists. They believe that there is only one divine uh, king in the world, and that is God. And, and so the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus by asking him a question, should we pay the imperial tax? Well, in those days, 
the imperial tax could only be paid with an imperial coin. And if you had an imperial coin, guess whose image and inscription was not on it? God. The, the, the inscription and the image on this coin, the image was of Tiberius, and the inscription said, Tiberius, the anointed son of the divine Augustus. Now, a good Pharisee and a good Jew would never want to pay an imperial tax because they'd have to pay it with an imperial coin. And on the imperial coin is this, this statement that there is another divine being other than God. So what they're hoping that they're going to do is they're, they're asking Jesus, should we pay this tax? If Jesus says yes to paying the tax then they can say that he is supporting another divine being and not the one true God, and that will get him in trouble. Now, the Herodians, on the other hand, they love Rome. They love Tiberius. In fact, they have learned that if they support Rome and they support Tiberius, then the perks keep coming back to them. So they're on the other side of the proverbial coin. They want to people to pay the imperial tax with an imperial coin because it comes back to benefit them in the long run. They're hoping that Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay the imperial tax with the imperial coin because that reeks of insurrection. You are not supporting Rome. And so either way, Jesus gets dealt with. And either way, they're trying to get Jesus out of the picture. So what does Jesus do? Jesus asks a question. He says, somebody bring me one of those coins. And all of a sudden, one of those coins shows up. Now, I'm guessing that it had to be the Herodians that brought the coin because it's got the divine Augustus and Tiberius on the coin. But wouldn't it be something if it was those religious purists that pulled out that coin to give to Jesus? But Jesus takes that coin, and he shows it to them, and he says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Now, if you grew up like I did with the King James Version, you might be familiar with another interpretation. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. That's actually a better translation of the Greek. Because the word render literally means to give back to. So when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, what he's really saying is give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And when Jesus says, give to God what is God's, he's actually saying, give back to God what is God's. Remember how when John Starr said that he shares what he has and how Stuart Cathy shared what he had because he believed that what he possessed was God's and he is giving back to God what is God's? That's exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage. That coin that's got Tiberius' picture on it, his image on it, that inscription that it says Tiberius, the, the anointed son of the divine Augustus, that coin actually is Caesar's coin. So it's okay to give that coin back to Caesar because it was his in 
the first place. But what Jesus wants the people to know is that each human life is itself a coin. My life, your life, it's a coin. And it's got an image on it. And it's got an inscription on it. And the image and the inscription on the coin of every human person, according to Jesus, is God. So it is okay to give to the coin that's got Caesar's image on it to Caesar. But when something is God's, you're supposed to give it back to God. What Jesus is saying here is that sometimes we, stuff can get in the way and, and we, get, we get to thinking that all of the stuff that we've acquired and all of the riches and the wealth that we enjoy is all the result of us. And Jesus is inviting us to remember, oh no, every good and perfect gift that you and I enjoy is a gift from a generous and loving and gracious God. So when you have the opportunity to give back to God what is God's, everything that we possess is appropriate to give back to God because it is God who has first so generously and lovingly shared it with us. That's the point that I want to make to you this morning. We can, we can lose sight of all that we have to be grateful for when we try to hoard our stuff, when we begin to focus on getting more stuff than on sharing what we have so been so generously been given with God and with others. And the invitation today is to not let our greed, our wanting to just get more and store it up to cause us to lose sight that everything we have is a gift from God. And, and Jesus invites us to return to God what is God's.